Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be discussing dissolving the ego. The ego serves no purpose. This is chapter 17 of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In this book, we're going chapter by chapter each week in order to study the teachings of the Buddha that lead to enlightenment. Enlightenment is the goal of Buddhist teachings where we're actively training the mind through learning the teachings, applying those in a daily practice, which includes things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and other very important teachings to help awaken the mind to the enlightened mind state. Once somebody actually attains enlightenment or as they're gradually moving in that direction and ultimately attain it, their mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's no longer any discontent feelings such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment. All of these discontent feelings and others are completely eliminated from the mind through the process of awakening it to the enlightened mind state. But in order to do that, each practitioner needs to take the active role in order to learn the teachings from a teacher and then apply them in their daily life, doing things such as meditating and other aspects of life, practicing the Eightfold Path, which is essentially our life practice in order to attain this mental state of enlightenment. One of the aspects of attaining enlightenment is to dissolve the ego. The ego causes many, many problems in the mind and in our life. So today we're going to be exploring this in detail so that we can understand what is the ego, how it impacts us, and then how we can actually dissolve it. As we get started here, I would like to just remind everyone, whatever platform you're on, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, the virtual classroom, or what have you, that we have opportunities throughout our talk for you guys to ask questions because questions are really important. You wouldn't be able to just sit down and read a book by yourself and become enlightened or watch a few YouTube videos here and there and become enlightened or listen to a few podcasts or even being online like this and just learning from a teacher and just becoming enlightened. It requires that you dig into the material and that you actively learn and actively engage with a teacher. The only person who would be able to attain enlightenment on their own without the guidance of any teachers would be an actual Buddha. 
a Buddha is self-awakened. They learn the teachings through their own pursuit and then through their own journey, they awaken the mind to enlightenment. And during their lifetime, they lead many, 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 many others to the enlightened mind state. This is how we know that a Buddha is a Buddha, is that they are self-awakened and then they also lead others towards enlightenment and attaining enlightenment through the teachings that they discover through their self-awakening. And one of the beauties about Gautama Buddha's teachings is they are independently verifiable. They're not based on belief. You can actually learn the teachings, apply them in your life and see that they're truth and that your mind moves from anger to sadness to irritation to annoyance to eventually similar situations arise and the mind doesn't have any anger where maybe in prior times the mind became very angry in certain situations so you can observe the mind becoming more and more peaceful so a buddha can do this on their own but everyone else is going to need teachers in order to engage with and ask questions and understand uh, the teachings and get help and guidance in their practice so asking questions and seeking guidance from a teacher is part of this path and is why Gautama Buddha during his lifetime helped as many people as possible to attain enlightenment. So over the last 2,500 years with his teachings and those people knowing how to attain enlightenment, the teachings have been handed down from person to person to person over the course of 2,500 years. So the last Buddha currently known to the world existed 2,500 years ago. And he became enlightened on his own through his own journey. He shared those teachings. More and more people became enlightened. They could observe that for themselves, that their mind was completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. They no longer experienced sadness or frustration or anger or annoyance or boredom or loneliness. All of that was eradicated from the mind. So they knew that they had studied the teachings that led to the truth, which is enlightenment, because they could experience it for themselves. So it's possible for you to ask questions. If you're on Facebook, YouTube, or the virtual classroom, you can put your question into the comment section, and our moderator, Max, will ask the question during the session. Or if you're in the virtual classroom, you have the added feature. If you click participant, then you can click on raise your hand and you can electronically raise your hand and Max will unmute you and you'll be able to ask your question directly or if you have any follow-up questions. So if somebody asks a question and you have a follow-up, you're welcome to do that through the virtual classroom or through any platform that you're on by just typing into the comment section. Okay, so feel free to ask questions, feel free to think about the things that we're discussing and get more insight as we go. Because my method of teaching is I tend to kind of teach at a certain level of understanding that I know will kind of apply to most people. And then where you guys have questions, we can dive in deeper into the material. But if I start deep and I go into the deep level and just keep on talking at that level, then maybe it's not as applicable to all people. So I kind of like to teach at a certain level and then as there's questions, dive deeper and deeper into it. So you have that ability to dive deeper and it actually enriches our conversation and our discussion here. Because for me, these aren't 
lectures or sermons or preaching or any of that kind of stuff, for me, the way that I look at this is it's a discussion. It's me sharing the teachings and helping you to understand them, but then discussing them through your questions. And your questions really enrich our conversation and our, our ability to dive into these teachings and for you to understand them and practice them in a way that's going to be helpful for your life to reaching this mental state of enlightenment. So let's talk about the ego, what it is, how it impacts us, you know, essentially why it's keeping us in the unenlightened state, and then we'll talk about how to actually dissolve it and get rid of it, okay? So what is the ego? The ego is essentially a collection of experiences that we've had in our life from the past or future expectations that we have of ourself. And holding on to these past experiences and these future expectations of ourself, we form this construct in the mind that we call in modern times the ego. And this ego essentially leads us down a path that is influenced by our past experiences, by things that we think or expect that we should accomplish in the future. This ego oftentimes even has expectations from other people. So if our parents or our friends or our loved ones, our life partners, people in our life, teachers, they may share with us about things that they think that we should do in life. And then we kind of adopt that and it becomes what we feel is our guiding light in life. And we're essentially pursuing various things in our life based on what we think we should be doing, what other people have told us we should be doing, rather than kind of eliminating all of those thoughts and expectations and just doing what we need to do in the moment based on what we're thinking at this moment. What we do in accumulation of this ego or this concept of a self is we lay out this future plan for ourselves, and because we have these expectations of what we should be doing we oftentimes beat ourselves up because we feel like we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing because we've had this plan laid out for however many years and because we're not where we expected or we're not where other people expect we tend to disparage ourselves we tend to beat ourselves up and we tend to think that we're not in the right direction of where we're supposed to be. And that is all just kind of delusion in the mind and just kind of the mind tricking itself and feeling like there's this predetermined way of being that we need to follow and that we're expected to follow rather than just rooting the mind in the present moment and experiencing each moment and deciding what we need to do in each moment we kind of lay out this whole future and we think that if we don't fulfill these expectations that we have of ourselves, that others have of us and even that society places on us, right? Society thinks that, okay, at the age of 18, you know, we should be moving outside of our parents' house. We should be going to college. We should graduate college and have a job and then we should get a house and then we should get a partner. Then we should have kids and then we should take good care of our kids. Then we should save up money for retirement. 
then we should retire somewhat wealthy and kind of kick back and relax. And there's kind of this life that's kind of laid out by society of what people expect for us to do. And people think that this is permanent and this is what's expected of all human beings in certain cultures. But the more you understand Gautama Buddha's teachings and you understand impermanence and you understand that all of these expectations that society is sharing is, is just conditioning the mind to think a certain way. And then if you haven't accomplished what society says that you should have accomplished, then you feel like your life is miserable or you're not doing what people expect and therefore you're a loser or you're no good because maybe you didn't go to college and maybe or maybe you went to college and you didn't get a job right away or maybe after college you moved back home with your mom and dad instead of getting your own house and maybe you're 30 35 40 years old and you don't have a life partner and now you feel sad and depressed because of that but it's just society putting pressure on you that they think that by now you should somehow have a partner, but not everybody conforms to that. Or perhaps you don't have a partner or you have a partner and you haven't had kids and people kind of wonder why haven't you had kids? And there's all these kind of pressures and expectations from society when in reality, every single life is different. Not everybody is going to follow this societal expectations of what we should do. But what happens is the mind holds on to these expectations, to what they've heard, what people have kind of impressed upon them. And because the mind holds on to it, then it can become very sad or depressed or have anxieties and other feelings because the mind's holding on to these expectations that people expect of us. So this is one component of what we call the ego, kind of this self-identity, this self-image, these expectations of what we should and shouldn't be doing. And it causes us problems in life because we're holding on to all this stuff in the mind. And then if we don't fulfill these expectations, we feel lesser of a person. And sometimes these things even lead to things like suicide or they lead to antidepressant medication or anti-anxiety medication or somebody thinking they're mentally ill because they're always sad or they're always lonely, but they're only lonely because sometimes they're craving that life partner that everybody says we're supposed to have by a certain time in our life. But if we eliminate all of that expectation from the mind, then we can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because we realize that everybody's unique and that everybody's going to fulfill these expectations of society. So that's one part of the ego, this self-identity, this self-image, these expectations that kind of get laid out for us. The other part of the ego is this conceit or arrogance that once we maybe have accomplished something or once we've kind of gone through certain stages of our life, we feel like, okay, now I can be arrogant and I'm better than everyone else. Where we start judging others and we feel like we're above another person. And this arrogance or this conceit comes across 
in our conversations and our actions and our decisions, whether they're personal decisions or business decisions, this arrogance or this conceit kind of radiates from the mind and it becomes very problematic in that it's interpreted from others as exactly what it is, which is arrogance and ego, and that we're judging others and putting ourselves above them and looking down on other people. And now because the ego thinks it's so great, there's all this arrogance, all this conceit, we think we're so wonderful, better than everyone else, then we hold ourselves in a higher esteem and we kind of disparage others and we can't have loving kindness, which is active goodwill towards all beings. And we can't have things like compassion, where it's concern for others' misfortune. We can't have things like sympathetic joy, which is being pleased with others' success, even though we didn't contribute to it. And we can't have things like equanimity in the mind or calmness of the mind and treating all beings equally. These are essentially the Brahma Viharas, which are in chapter 13 and covered prior to getting to the ego, chapter 17, because these four mind states are required to be cultivated in the mind in order to attain enlightenment. But if there's ego present, i.e. this arrogance, this conceit, this thinking that we're better than everyone else and judging others as being below us, then we aren't going to be able to cultivate these other mind states that we actually need. So in the Buddhist teachings and training the mind, we're always actively eliminating certain things from the mind and we're actively cultivating certain things in the mind. Here in the Buddhist teachings, the primary problem that he describes is craving, desire, attachment, which we work through meditation and generosity to eliminate from the mind. But then we also cultivate certain things like the Brahma-viharas. Well, one of the other things that we need to eliminate from the mind is we need to eliminate this ego because it stands in the way of us interacting with all beings in a loving kindness way, active goodwill. It inhibits us from interacting with other beings with compassion, which is concern for others' misfortune. It inhibits us from having sympathetic joy, which is having joy in others' success, essentially eliminating jealousy, right? Because if we're jealous of other people because they're successful or we perceive what's happened to them as being successful, that jealousy is going to stand in the way of you interacting with all beings in a peaceful caring and loving way. So we need to cultivate sympathetic joy or having joy in seeing others be successful even if we didn't contribute to it. And that fourth Brahma-vihara of equanimity of being able to have calmness of mind, evenness of temper, and treating all beings equally. So dissolving the ego, i.e. this concept of self-identity, this self-image, these expectations of who we think we are, which then gets wrapped into arrogance and conceit and judging others and looking down on them. All of this just stands in the way of having a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Because 
if you're walking around with arrogance, it's not going to be very joyful because other people are going to not be interested in being around that. It's not going to be helpful for you if you're looking down on others, judging others, and walking around with arrogance. And likewise, if you're walking around with certain expectations of yourself and others and what they should and shouldn't be doing, it's not going to be very peaceful because now if you think you're above everybody judging others with arrogance and conceit and you have certain expectations of yourself and you have certain expectations of others and you're trying to control other people and telling them what to do and when to do it and how it should be done based on your liking, then that's kind of controlling people and people aren't going to like that and they're not going to enjoy having relationships with you. So if you're walking around with this arrogance and this conceit, this self-image, these expectations and trying to control people because you feel that you're better than everyone else, then that's going to lead to problems in your personal relationships and in your business relationships. So I would like to pause here and see what questions you guys might have on the ego in terms of what it is and how it impacts us and how it inhibits us from realizing this enlightened mind and having open relationships with all people. We have a question from Alan on YouTube. Alan asks, is the ego the biggest obstacle to understanding anatta, which by the way is the Pali word for non-self? Yes, I would say absolutely. In fact, right after we're done with this round of questions, I'm going to discuss the 10 fetters, which goes into non-self and conceit and shows you how dissolving the ego is absolutely part of the Buddhist teachings. So yes, if there's ego there, it's very hard to eradicate the self. But what you're going to see when we talk is the Buddha kind of separated them in two different things because the word ego didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. We call it the ego in the West. And it kind of is comprised of two different components that the Buddha broke out. Here in Thailand and in Asia, the word ego still isn't kind of part of the vocabulary. I don't even think the Thais have it as part of their vocabulary. So we're going to break out the ego into two separate pieces so you can see it more clearly. I have a question. So he talks about cultural influences there, cultural expectations and conditioning. And yet, at the same time, everything is our karma. Everything is our choice. Every situation we end up in is really the result of our decisions. But we're all affected by cultural conditioning. So how do we reconcile those, those two facts? Essentially, we've been born into a certain culture, a certain family, a certain country. And just being reborn into this human realm is wonderful because now we have the opportunity to actually attain enlightenment. We experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So this discontent mind that's comprised of these three things is exactly the motivation that we need in order to see like, hey, life isn't 100% wonderful. I would like to fix it. And that's kind of the motivation in order to encourage us to become enlightened and practice these teachings. And being human, we have the ability to learn and cultivate the consciousness, essentially gaining wisdom, where an animal doesn't have that. An animal still experiences 
certain painful feelings and pleasant feelings and things like this, but they don't have the ability to cultivate their consciousness through learning teachings and creating wisdom. So this is the reason why animals can't attain enlightenment, but humans can. So it's wonderful that we're human and we're born into certain conditions, born into certain families, certain education, certain wealth, some places in the world, you know, humans are born into famine conditions or poverty or things like this. And that's just their gamma and where they were born into. So being born into, say, the West, like us, we have better access to certain educational systems in terms of reading and writing and things like this. We have certain opportunities for jobs and lifestyle choices that somebody else that maybe is born into poverty or famine conditions that don't have. So we have certain attributes from our past lives that we're born into that are helpful in our pursuit to attaining enlightenment. But there's also things that are unhelpful too, like the fact that our culture has taught us certain things that we've learned. We need to overcome those obstacles in order to attain enlightenment. Just like someone who's born into poverty or famine, they need to overcome those obstacles in order to attain enlightenment as well. So everybody's born into whatever condition they're born into in terms of their physical body, their mental capacity, their wealth or education, their access to those type of things. We're all born into the world with various obstacles. And one could argue one situation is better than the other. But in reality, we all have to overcome all the obstacles that we have. One of the biggest obstacles that we have in the West in order to attain enlightenment is these teachings haven't really penetrated our culture, right? There really isn't much Buddhist teachings in Western culture. Most of what we learn is Christianity or Islam tradition and other traditions like this, which have passed to the same human condition of enlightenment. You know, Jesus would have called it the Holy Spirit. And he kind of taught his way of attaining this mental state, although he didn't describe it that way. And But the underlying teachings are very similar. So Jesus's path to me isn't laid out quite as clearly as the Buddha's, but one of the obstacles we have to overcome in the West is just having access to these teachings. So now with me having had this almost 20-year relationship with Thailand and Thai culture, having access to these teachings in ways that the Western world doesn't, now that I've discovered these teachings and been able to practice them and understand them, that's why one of my big efforts is to bring these teachings more to the West to help people in the Western culture to understand that these feelings of anger and hatred and sadness and frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fears, loneliness, boredom, shyness, resentment, all of this stuff that we just think is just part of life. Here in Asia, they have the teachings to eliminate it 100% from the mind. They realize that, yes, it's part of the human condition, and that's the discontent mind, they realize it's a problem and they realize it can be eliminated. But in the Buddhist teachings, there's no requirement to go out and spread the teachings to the whole world and convince everybody to actually practice these. So while the Buddhist teachings have been in Asia for 2,500 years, 
you don't see Thai people beating down the street to try to spread these teachings across the world because they know that that's not the way that they work. The way that the Buddhist teachings work is people need to actively reach out and choose to learn them. It's not about impressing beliefs on other people and trying to influence people to believe the same thing that the Thais believe because there is no belief in Buddhist teachings. It's all about learning the truth, independently verifying these truths, and then you practicing the teachings, you're eradicating these discontent feelings from the mind. So Thailand is here. There's lots of Buddhist temples. There's lots of monks. There's lots of people that are here to share these teachings, but it's up to individuals to choose to step forward to actually learn them and implement them in their life. And that's one of the obstacles that we have in the West is that there hasn't been so much movement of these teachings from Asia into the Western world, but more and more since kind of around the 60s and 70s, 1970s, uh, people have been kind of bringing the teachings into the West. And that was about 50 years ago. But in terms of Buddhist culture, 50 years is like a drop in the bucket, right? You're talking about 2,500 years of teachings. They've been with the Thai people for over a thousand years. So they're so well rooted into the culture here and so much a part of life that they're practiced so deeply because they've been part of the culture for so long. So the fact that they've kind of like been in Western culture and kind of starting this transmigration from Asia into the West in the last 50 years, that's like just getting started. That, that hasn't even like scratched the surface. And that's one of the big obstacles that we have in our culture. So this conditioning of our Western culture is an obstacle but the Buddhist teachings will help you to eradicate that and see that this perfect image of happiness that is kind of like taught to us as children, this material wealth that we're taught is going to lead to this ultimate happiness. More and more we can learn that this isn't true reality, right? First of all, happiness is impermanent. We can't maintain happiness permanently. So there's no way to attain happiness permanently if it's based on some other conditions. And we know that material wealth isn't happiness because some of the richest people in the world are really great, really wonderful people. But there's also some very rich people in the world who get addicted to drugs, who commit suicide, who have a lot of problems in their life. Wealth in terms of monetary wealth doesn't equal happiness. So we've all been kind of taught, go for happiness, happiness, just be happy, just be happy, just work and work and work and work. And the more you work and the more possessions you have, and when you drive that sports car and you have that beautiful life partner and you have this perfect family with, you know, 2.5 kids. And when you have this house, that's a million dollars or $2 million and you have this certain job, that's the perfect image of happiness. And when you attain that, everything in life's gonna be perfect. Well, everybody keeps moving towards that goal, and the more and more and more they try to get to that goal, the more unhappy they get because they can't get that goal. And then even if they do get that goal, 
then the expectations that society places of what now we should actually have changes and everybody's just chasing this unrealistic goal of this impermanent happiness that's not permanent. Everyone's chasing this unrealistic goal of materialism and possessions and wealth that is unrealistic because every time we get a certain income and wealth, then we want more, we want more, we want more. And these societal, cultural challenges that we have in our culture where people are influenced in this direction, it just inhibits us from having a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because we're always chasing after something with our cravings. So everybody's got obstacles, but it's the Buddha's teachings that will strip all that away for you and realize that you've been living in this delusion of chasing after unrealistic goals, that you can actually attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy now. You have everything that you need. You have food, you have clothes, you have water, you have shelter, you probably have access to medical care. Those are the five basic things that you need to sustain life. Now all you need is the teachings of the Buddha which provides you wisdom that when you learn that wisdom and you can train the mind, you can actually attain this mental state of enlightenment. But in order to do that, you have to see what the real true teachings are, what we call the Dhamma or the teachings. You have to understand these teachings of how to train the mind to awaken it to this enlightened mind state. You know, as we're talking about material wealth, a lot of people look at places like Thailand and others and, you know, in the West, some people kind of look down on places like Thailand and think, ah, they're so poor, they're uneducated, they don't know what they're doing, you know, we're so much richer, we're in the West, we've got access to all this education. But in reality, when you really get close to these people in Thailand, you actually realize they actually have quite a bit of money, right? They wouldn't be building gold temples if they didn't have money. What it is, is they don't value material possessions and value material wealth and showing that off to everybody through having a multi-million dollar house, through driving BMWs and Mercedes and Lamborghinis. And sure, those things are here and some people drive them and have really nice houses, but the average person in Thailand isn't going after material wealth. They're not chasing this unrealistic goal of happiness, which is based on material wealth. What people are doing here is their only interest is coexisting with other people peacefully. That's the goal. Their goal isn't to chase this unrealistic material wealth that somehow leads to happiness because they know that's not the truth. They know what creates true peacefulness is peacefully coexisting with their mother, their father, their brothers, their sisters, their aunts, their uncles, their neighbors, their teachers, their leaders in the community, their elders. They know that real peacefulness is respecting each other, being polite with one another, being kind with one another, not being hostile and aggressive towards each other. They know that these things lead to a peaceful life. So that's why you don't see a lot of material wealth in Thailand because they're not displaying their wealth. 
they don't have ego in terms of wanting to display their wealth and having a desire to display their wealth. What they're interested in is let's make sure everyone in the village, i.e. our neighborhood, gets along with each other. Let's share our food. Let's share smiles. Let's share our resources. If somebody needs help in our community, let's all help them. Let's be kind. Let's be loving. Let's be caring. None of us are getting out of here alive. So why don't we all just figure out how to live peacefully together? And this is what essentially goes on here in Thailand is everybody's being peaceful with each other, making sure everybody has food and water and everyone's taken care of. And we all just help each other and make sure that we're all taken care of. And along the way, we're being polite, kind, peaceful, respectful to each other. And we're all living peacefully with each other. And then when there's a problem in the village or in the neighborhood or what have you, we all come together and talk about it, about how to fix it. Right. So rather than kind of having ego or aggressive, you know, the whole mentality of it takes a village to raise a child. Right. That we have in the West. You know, we kind of know that, but we don't practice it a lot of times in the West. Here it's practiced. So like, for example, a couple of weeks ago, my son was out riding his bike in the village and one of the village boys like threw some water on him and hit him with a bucket and did a bunch of other stuff. And he came home and let us know that. And my wife and I, you know, went over to the house to see the parents. And when we showed up, there was already another family. <laughs> there was already another family there talking to that family because that boy had caused problems with their family too. So we had to kind of wait in line. <laughs> and then once they were done and kind of like telling the boy what he did wrong, then it was our turn. And then the mom, you know, she was sweating. and But she knows that she has to let these people in the village come and tell her son what was wrong and what he did wrong. So instead of standing there with ego and arrogance and thinking that her son's perfect and pushing all the, the villagers away who are having problems with her son, she just kind of let them all come in and talk to her son and say, okay, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, and that wasn't correct, and you should have did this better, and why did you do this? This was wrong. And the mom stood there, and she just listened and let us talk respectfully to her son. And then she even started asking us advice, like, how do you think that I should help my son to stop doing these things? And I, I'm kind of like lost. I don't know how to solve these things with my son. So rather than having ego and pushing everybody away, the mom was allowing these villagers to come in, not only help her son, but she was asking for our advice too. And this is what happens in a society of people that don't have ego is everybody's kind of helping each other to figure out life and get along and peacefully coexist together. So I answer a lot more than your question there, but I think that was important to hear this way of being in Asia is very different than Western culture, very, very different than Western culture, where getting rid of the ego makes you so much more open and accepting of other people's thoughts and ideas and opinions. And as a group, we can then collectively evolve 
supporting each other, living more peacefully with each other. Yeah, great. Thanks, David. That was a really helpful answer. And I like how you started out by saying, well, first of all, we're all human. So we've all got that going for us here in terms of liberating the mind. But then also describing how everybody on the earth is going to be born facing obstacles. It's really down to us how we choose to overcome those. And whether you're born in Thailand, whether you're born somewhere in the West, there's going to be similar obstacles. There's going to be different obstacles no matter where we are. And it's always really our choice how we navigate those. Right. And while we're talking about obstacles, you know, some of us being born in the West, we have very difficult uh, relationships with our families, right? Our mothers, our fathers. We feel like we're not getting the guidance that we need from our parents. Some people have even been abused, either mentally or physically or sexually abused by our parents, right? And that's really left a certain challenge in the mind of now having had this happen to us, that's an obstacle, right? Of not having parents necessarily that have taken an interest to teach us and guide us or even understand how to do that. They might not even understand how to do that because they were never guided in life very well. So oftentimes in the West, while we may have better access to money or educational systems, maybe our parents didn't give us the guidance where a family who's maybe living in, say, Africa, who maybe is very impoverished and maybe famine, they may have elders in their community who really know how to shape and guide the children that are growing up, but they just don't have access to money and food. So every culture has various challenges. And one of the things that we need to do in the West is get rid of this ego, thinking that we're so great and we're so wonderful just because we have access to money and maybe access to education and we have bombs that can bomb people who disagree with us. We need to realize that we have just as much challenges as any other culture. And in fact, some of these indigenous cultures like in Africa and South America and Asia, they actually have much more teachings from their elders because they respect their elders so much more than what we do in the West. So those teachings have been able to guide and shape young people growing up. Sure, they might not have money, they might not have food, they might not have access to educational systems, but they have education from the elders. And because in the West we prize these material possessions, we think with ego and arrogance, we think that we're so much better than everyone else in the world in some communities. But we need to eradicate that ego and realize that because we disrespect our elders for multiple centuries, that we now don't have that knowledge above us in an elder community that can now share teachings with us, that can shape us and help us to grow. And that's where teachings like the Buddha can really come in and help us in our 30s, 40s, and 50s if we didn't get this guidance from our elders. And now, if the Buddhist teachings come into the West more and more and more, now when you guys choose to have kids or you have nieces or nephews or whatever, and you share these teachings with them about respect and politeness and kindness and love and compassion and all these things, now they can slowly over multiple generations do like what the Thais have done, which is maintain this knowledge in their culture, and then the West will become a better and better place because they'll be practicing these good, wholesome teachings, which lead to the enlightened mind, 
where you can eliminate discontent feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, all of these things. Okay, thanks for that, David. We have a question from Marcus. How, why, and when did we begin developing the ego? I'm not sure. And at this point, I don't know that it really matters um, because it's in the past. What really matters is the ego is here now. It's in a lot of people's minds and we've got to eradicate it, right? Because if you go back to prehistoric times in caveman days, cavewoman days, cave people days, I'm pretty sure those people didn't have ego, right? Because in prehistoric times, you basically etched out a cave, you lived with other people, and you had to really watch yourself because when you went outside, there was all these dinosaurs around. Man or humans weren't the biggest, baddest creatures on earth. We were low on the totem pole. And when we went outside, we knew that we weren't the biggest, baddest creatures on earth because there was all these big dinosaurs roaming around and we could be gobbled up in a heartbeat. Our only goal at that point in time, I would imagine, is just to survive, right? We would go out and collect berries and fruits and vegetables and try to sustain our life through food. We didn't invite people over to our cave and like, hey, look at my beautiful couch. Look at my beautiful drapes. Look at my nice new TV. Aren't I the man? Aren't I so important? Right. In caveman days, it was everybody just trying to peacefully coexist together. But somewhere along the line, as we started killing all these animals, we started feeling like we're the biggest, baddest creature on this earth. And nowadays, if a lion or a tiger came off its reserve and came and kind of attacked a human and killed a human, there would kind of be a search party to go out and actually find this animal and kill it. Because that's kind of like the humans maintaining this ego that we're the biggest, baddest creatures on this earth. And that's how we've kind of accumulated this ego is that we think that we're the biggest, baddest creatures on this earth. And if something comes in and, and shatters that reality, like a lion or a tiger and kills a human, then we will typically go out and try to find that animal and kill it. And that kind of reaffirms to us that we are the biggest, baddest creatures on this earth. But in reality, if we just got rid of that ego and realized that we aren't the biggest, baddest creatures, and we just need to learn to live peacefully with each other, other humans and other animals, and find out how to do that peacefully, then we can eradicate this ego. But unfortunately, over time, we've accumulated this ego. When it actually started happening or how it happened, it's all in the past now, but it's standing in the way of living peacefully with all beings. So it needs to be dissolved. It needs to be eradicated. There's no purpose to this ego. It doesn't help us. There's no wholesome purpose to holding on to arrogance and conceit. I have a question from Tay. He asks, some people are saying they are happy every day. Why? Well, they could be saying that, but whether they actually are is, is two different things, right? You have to talk to those people and try to understand why they're saying that. Um, you might ask them, oh, you're happy, but you know, do you ever experience boredom or loneliness or shyness or guilt or shame or fears? This is part of the ego, right? Sometimes the ego puts on this veneer. It puts it in this kind of glass veneer and tries to project this image that I'm perfect. I'm so happy. I'm perfect. I'm wonderful. 
and it's you all who aren't happy. But oftentimes when you talk to people privately, if they're really honest with you or you start asking them questions, you'll realize that there's not true happiness because happiness is impermanent. Unless somebody's enlightened where they're experiencing peace, calm, serenity, contentness with joy, then there's still going to be discontent feelings there. So these people may not be honest with themselves and they may not be honest with you. They might just kind of be putting on this veneer that they're happy, but they may not be. Um, you'd have to talk with them further and try to understand what they mean by that. Okay, we have no more questions this time. Okay, so now that we understand what the ego is and how it's impacting us in terms of inhibiting us from realizing these open, peaceful relationships with others, it's kind of pushing people away because of the arrogance. Let's look at the 10 fetters and how Gautama Buddha was describing this during his lifetime, okay? Gautama Buddha gave us these 10 fetters. And what these are is they're called the taints. What a taint is, is a taint is an impure quality of mind, essentially pollution of the mind. These are things that inhibit us from attaining enlightenment. In order to attain enlightenment, we need to eradicate these 10 fetters. There's four stages to enlightenment. Stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. And there's different things that occur with these four stages of enlightenment. And in order to attain these various stages of enlightenment, we need to either eradicate or thin these various fetters. So for example, to get to the very first stage of enlightenment, which is stream enterer, you need to eliminate the first three fetters, personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong grasp of behaviors and observances. That's to get to the first stage of enlightenment. And remember, prior to the four stages of enlightenment, there's four jhanas, which we talked about in our last session. So to get to this first stage of enlightenment, we need to eliminate the personal existence view. This is essentially realizing non-self, okay? What non-self is, is this is the self-identity, the self-image in the mind, certain expectations that we have of ourself, thinking that there's this permanent self. And when we think that there's this permanent self, then we protect it. The mind becomes discontent because when somebody says something that affects our self-identity, our self-image, we then become hostile and angry because the mind feels offended because somebody has maybe talked negatively about us. So if we maintain this personal existence view, i.e. self-identity and self-image, then the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in all situations because as soon as it hears something displeasing about the self-image or self-identity, it's going to become hostile. It's going to become angry. It's going to have hatred. It's going to react negatively towards the other person. And this isn't an enlightened mind. So in order to get to this first stage of enlightenment, we need to eradicate this personal existence view or realized non-self. 
there's a lot more to understand here about non-self that we can talk about if you guys have questions. We can even talk about it more on Wednesday if you want. But this is one component of what we call the ego. What we call the ego, this is just one component of it. So this needs to be eradicated from the mind. And essentially what we need to do is practice in a way where we don't think this is mine. What ends up happening when there is a personal existence view is everything becomes mine and we become very selfish because we think there's a self. We haven't realized non-self. So we think there's a self. We become very self-centered. We become very selfish and everything's mine, my car, my mom, my son, my life, my job. And then when we lose these things or they become damaged or they disagree with us, then the mind becomes discontent. So if it's my car and it belongs to me, then when there's an accident or someone scratches it, now the mind becomes hostile. Or if it's my job and now I get laid off because the economy's bad, now the mind becomes discontent. It becomes sad or lonely or upset or bored because I've lost my job. The mind doesn't recognize impermanence, that everything's always changing. If it's my son, then when my son doesn't do what I want, then the mind becomes discontent because it's my son and he should do what I want, right? I have certain expectations for him and that's what is unenlightened mind. Or if it's my life, then when I'm getting closer and closer to death, I'm losing my life and now I become discontent, angered, frustrated, irritated, uh, whatever. Or if it's my mom, when my mom dies, then that's been taken away from me and now the mind becomes discontent because it was mine and now it's gone and it should be mine because I'm selfish. So this personal existence view and thinking there's this self, everything's mine, belongs to me, becoming very selfish. Now we try to hold on to all this stuff whether it's a car, a job, an income, a wife, a husband, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a child, a job, whatever it is, we hold on to all this stuff. And then when it either disagrees with us, our life partner disagrees, has a different opinion, or our child disagrees with us, or we lose our job, or we lose our car, because all these things are going to leave us someday because of impermanence. Nothing's permanent. So when all of this stuff goes away or disagrees with us, then the mind becomes discontent. And this is why this personal existence view has to be eradicated from the mind and realize non-self or else you're always going to be discontent because nothing is yours. Nothing belongs to you. Even this life, even this human life, it doesn't belong to you it's going to leave someday. You're going to actually die. 
and you have to come to grips with that. And all the relatives and all your family, everybody around you is going to die someday. And it's just part of life. So if we hold on to this personal existence view, this one component of the ego, then the mind's going to be discontent. So that needs to be eradicated. And then as we move through the stages of enlightenment, the first three stages, essentially, you're working with these lower fetters, personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong grasp of behavior and observances, central desires and ill will. You're working to eradicate those. If you eliminate all of these in the mind through good, wholesome teachings and practices, you're going to notice some very significant improvements in terms of your abilities to interact with personal and professional relationships. And your life's going to be quite nice having attained any of these three lower stages of enlightenment. But if you want to get to actual full enlightenment or arahant, the fourth stage, where you completely eliminate all of the discontent mind 100%, You not only need to eliminate the lower fetters, but you need to eliminate the higher fetters. So somebody who has attained either the first, second, or third stage of enlightenment can still have conceit or arrogance, right? And if you have this or any of the other higher fetters, then the mind is not yet fully enlightened and there's still going to be discontentedness in these three lower stages of enlightenment. It's not until you eradicate all of the 10 fetters that the mind is fully enlightened and you'll have eradicated 100% of the discontent mind, which includes desire for form, which is essentially desiring to be reborn back into the human world or animal world, desire for formless, right? A desire to be reborn in one of the formless realms, which is hell, afflicted spirits, which is like ghosts and demons, things like this, or heaven, right? The goal of the Gautama Buddha's teachings is to not even be reborn in heaven because those beings are still existing. And the goal is to eliminate existence. And there are people who actually desire to be reborn in hell, believe it or not. There's people like that. And there's people who have a desire to be reborn as a ghost or a spirit, right? So we have to eliminate those, which for some people, those might be pretty easy to eliminate. And then there's this fetter of conceit or arrogance or pride or judging, right? Being so proud of ourselves. That's where once you've eliminated the personal existence view in conceit or arrogance, now you've completely dissolved the ego 100%. And then the last two fetters, the restlessness, which is like a confused, distracted, restless state of mind, the opposite of single-mindedness. And then the 10th fetter is what we call ignorance, but and also we call it delusion. But I feel the Buddhist teachings on this is closer to what I would describe as unknowing of true reality right? This unknowing of true reality is the mind doesn't realize that it's causing itself to be discontent and it doesn't realize it can eliminate it. This is the Four Noble Truths. If you've studied back to the Four Noble Truths and you understand what that is, 
that we cause our own discontentness and we can eliminate it, then you've eliminated some of the unknowing of true reality. If you've studied the Eightfold Path and you're starting to practice that and you see how to implement that, then you're starting to eliminate some of the unknowing of true reality. If you've studied the five precepts and you see how by practicing those, it improves the decisions that you're making in life, then you're starting to eradicate some of this unknowing of true reality. If you understand the natural law of karma, if you understand the three poisons, if you understand a lot of the things that we're learning, the Brahma Viharas, eradicating the ego, all of these things, essentially an arahant is someone who has no unknowing of true reality whatsoever. They can explain all the things that are happening in the world in terms of things like COVID and racism and protesting, murders and rapes and poverty and famine. They can describe all of this stuff through the teachings of the Buddha because the Buddha's teachings actually explain all of the things that are happening in the world around us. So someone who's eradicated this unknowing of true reality will be able to explain everything that's happening in the world based on the teachings of the Buddha because he explained why all of these things are actually occurring in the world based on the human mind and how we make decisions. But this talk isn't really about going into depth with the 10 fetters. You know, we can do that if you guys have questions on any of these 10 fetters. This talk is mainly focused on the ego. And what I would like to draw your attention to is that the Buddha separated this out because during his lifetime, the word ego didn't exist yet. So he separated it out as personal existence view and conceit or arrogance. Or another way to say that is we are consolidating personal existence view and conceit into one word which is ego. But it's important that you separate it and you see that these are two separate things because you may eliminate this personal existence view, this self-identity, self-image, but there's still ego there. There's still arrogance. There's still pride. There's still judging other people, even though you might have eliminated the concept of a self in the mind. Okay, so do you guys have any questions on any of the 10 fetters, even though I didn't go into them in a lot of detail, but more specifically, the personal existence view and conceit, because those are the two that we're really dealing with when we're talking about the ego. A question from Tay. He asks, does non-self mean no soul? Gautama Buddha left the teaching about a soul as undeclared. Okay. He didn't say whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. And he didn't say whether the body has a soul or it doesn't have a soul or whether those things even exist. He left it as undeclared. In Western culture and a lot of places in the world, even in Asian culture, some people talk about a soul. The concept of a soul is that there's this never-changing entity or energy or whatever we want to call it that kind of moves from existence to existence. This is contrary and contradicts Gautama Buddha's teachings on impermanence and it contradicts the teachings of non-self. So he left the teachings about a soul as undeclared. 
meaning he didn't teach that there was a soul and he didn't teach that there isn't a soul. He just left it as undeclared. Okay, we have a question from Bill. Politics and current events are creating a lot of ill will among friends. It seems to be when the ego is at its strongest. When I have an awareness of that and choose not to engage in conversations and on social media, is that conceit or is that a wholesome decision to not engage? Yeah, it's the second one. There's discernment. Discernment is wise decisions that lead you toward wholesome results. So Gautama Buddha actually discouraged his monks from discussing politics in events of the world because he really was interested in focusing them on attaining enlightenment and then teaching others how to attain enlightenment. And he only discussed things that lead to enlightenment. And we know that discussions on politics don't lead to enlightenment. So if you're choosing not to talk about politics, you're actually practicing the higher teachings that Gautama Buddha gave to his monks, which is don't discuss politics because it doesn't lead to enlightenment. So there's nothing wrong with not discussing politics and choosing not to do that. That's not arrogance. That's just, I choose not to talk about that. And that's one of my choices too, is I don't talk about politics, not even with my wife. I don't even talk about politics because political people and what's going on in politics that just happens and there's people involved in that. And I just choose not to be involved in it. It's not ego. It's not conceit. Now, if you were judging others, if you were saying, I'm not going to talk about it because I'm better than everyone else. And those people who talk about politics are no good. They're horrible people. That would be conceit. That would be arrogance. That would be ego. But if you're just choosing not to talk about it and you're like, you know what? I just choosing not to talk about it. But if you guys want to talk about it, go ahead. That's practicing in a way that's not conceit, arrogance, or ego. Because in reality, in the lay life, right? The Buddha taught his monks not to talk about politics. But in the lay life, for certain people who choose to get into that, they do need to talk about it. And it's helpful to talk about it because it's politics that shapes our society and our societal systems. The challenge is that people get so attached to their views and their opinions and their ideas about politics. They have this mental longing, this strong eagerness, this craving, this desire, this attachment to their opinions, their views, their ideas, that then it becomes hostile, becomes angry. Everybody becomes frustrated because they're trying to push and control their way right? That's where the real problems come in. Here in Thailand, they have politics as well, but people tend to just sit around and talk about what's good for the country and what's good for the people rather than forcing their views or opinions on other people. They're just discussing what is helpful to the people. And in doing that, you can have very helpful political discussions but in the West, we tend to hold these opinions, views, and ideas so strongly that everybody becomes inflamed and they can't talk about politics peacefully unless it's somebody that agrees with your opinion 100%. As soon as people start disagreeing in political communities, for some, it becomes very hostile. But what these teachings can offer to the West 
is learning how to talk about politics if you choose in a very peaceful way because it is possible. It is possible to do and it's actually more beneficial. But if we go around in politics and we disparage other people and we talk bad, slandering, gossiping, we talk hostile and aggressive and we think everybody else is wrong and we're right, which is ego, then the whole thing becomes messy. And this is where a lot of people choose to not talk about politics. But if people get rid of the ego and they get rid of the craving, holding on to these ideas so um, tightly, and they just sit down and they just talk about what's best for the public, what's best for society, what's best for humanity, they can have a very respectful conversation even when they're disagreeing with each other and can come to some conclusion and the conclusion might be that we just disagree on this and that's okay. But because of craving, some people get so adamant in these political discussions that they're not gonna give up the discussion until either everybody agrees with them or the discussions become so hostile, everybody walks away from it angry. Those are the kind of the two outcomes. Rather than just realizing there's a third outcome, which is we disagree with each other and we can still respect each other. We can still be polite with each other. We can still be kind with each other. That's the third outcome because not everyone's always going to agree with us. That would be permanence. That's the unenlightened mind craving permanence. Not everyone's always going to agree with us. And we don't need to be hostile, angry, and uh, have hatred towards each other and being disrespectful, disparaging each other, slandering and gossiping each other. We can take this third option, which is we have an open discussion sharing our views in a peaceful, kind way, and we accept when people disagree with us, and that's okay, and we are comfortable with that. And if there is no self, and there is no ego, arrogance, then this third option in political discussions becomes very viable and becomes very healthy. And this is where you can move the conversation along because disagreement is actually helpful, and it moves the agenda of the world and of societies forward because we can now disagree respectfully. What are some things we can do, David, to thin and eventually eliminate personal existence view? Okay, so that's what we're gonna talk about now. That was kind of like the next piece of this talk is talk about how do we eradicate this, right? Now that we see the problem, hopefully you guys are seeing the problem, how this, personal existence view, how this conceit, this arrogance, this pride, this judging other people, this leads to horrible problems in the world. Not only does it lead to some of the problems we're talking about right now, but this is what creates war. This is part of what creates war, right? Millions and millions of people have died over the course of humanity because of ego. Right, One country's leader maybe offends another country's leader or one country feels like they're so much better than the other country and they want to impress upon another country to do it our way. And if you don't do it our way, we're going to bomb you into submission because we're better than you. Right, This ego, this arrogance, this personal existence view, it causes problems on a day-to-day -day basis 
and that we don't have good healthy relationships with individuals but it causes significant problems at the world level when you've got leaders who are disagreeing with each other and now their ego gets involved they have access to arsenals of weaponry and military and now they start bombing each other and now millions of average people like us start dying because of these bombs or we get bombed into submission and now there's famine or disease or illness or now our elders have gone away to war and gotten killed and now the children don't have the guidance and support or income that they need to sustain their life right so this ego just causes enormous problems in the entire world yes it causes problems individually in our individual relationships but at a much higher level with leadership across the world it causes enormous problems so eradicating this ego and dissolving the personal existence view and conceit arrogance pride judging each other is also important because there's no reason for one country to tell another country you've got to do it our way and if you don't become like us then we are going to bomb you right so what we need to do on an individual level to eliminate personal existence view is we need to recognize impermanence that there is no permanent self right there is no permanent self that this self-identity this self-image that we've walked around with has changed over the course of our life and the person that we are today is different than the person we were five or ten years ago because there is no permanent self the image and identity that we've held on to in the mind it's evolved and evolved and evolved and it's changed so there is no permanent self so we need to recognize that that it's impermanent and in order to eradicate it is we need to recognize this impermanent self and we need to practice being humble we need to practice being peaceful with others we need to practice not pushing or forcing our views and opinions on others and allowing all beings to just do what they feel is in their best interest right now if you see somebody who's raping another person or murdering another person and you choose to step in to resolve that then that's your choice but in terms of letting people do what they choose to do what i mean by that is if somebody decides that they would like to have a relationship with a same-sex partner okay that's their life that's their choice there's no need for us to convince that person that there's anything wrong with that because that's their choice and that's their life and they're not causing any harm by loving another man or by loving another woman or if we see somebody who chooses to have one career or another or wear certain clothes or wear certain jewelry or get a certain tattoo not judging people for the, the various choices that they have in their life just because we've made certain choices about our life doesn't mean that we need to impress upon that on everyone else so by remaining humble 
and realizing that every single person is a unique person, that there is no permanent self, then we can eradicate this self and having to push our views, expectations, and opinions on other people. If we let go of this self-identity and this self-image, thinking that everybody has to be like us in order for us to love them, in order for us to have care for them, in order for us to have compassion for them, then we can live peacefully with all people, right? This is part of where racism comes from, is people have this certain image of who they think they are. They think that that is best. They become arrogant about their race or their religion or their sexual orientation or whatever it is, and now they become arrogant about that and they think everybody has to be the same as them. And if they aren't the same as them, then they're bad and they're no good, right? Let's use the example of the situation that happened in Minnesota. Here's a man that has skin that's a certain pigment and some people in the world feel that because of that, he's lesser of of a human being and that he doesn't deserve the same treatment as everyone else. And because of the arrogance, because of the self-image, the self-identity, now that person who thinks that way, that their way of being is the best, now treats someone with different color skin differently. So each person with a different color gets treated differently, which we know is going to lead to problems. This is why we've got this big problem because of arrogance, because of pride, because of judging others, because of this self-image, someone has been essentially murdered because they weren't being cared for. There wasn't loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings being exercised in that situation. There wasn't compassion being exercised in that situation. Compassion is concern for others' misfortune right? This gentleman was handcuffed. He was laying on the ground. He was saying, I can't breathe. Any compassionate being that has concern for others' misfortune would just roll him over or pick him up or let him sit down. There was no reason to hold him on the ground for eight or nine minutes while he was saying he can't breathe. Someone who has loving kindness, active goodwill, and compassion that has eradicated the ego, arrogance and pride in judging other people wouldn't have done that, right? So eradicating this self-identity and the self-image, being humble, being peaceful, being kind, being polite, being respectful, having gratitude, having appreciation for all people, These are ways to eradicate this personal existence view and this conceit. Viewing all people equally. Doesn't matter the color of their skin, the length of their hair, the color of their hair, the religion, the culture they're from, their education, their income level, what their clothes look like, whether they have tattoos or not. All of these labels and categorizations that we assign to people just give the mind opportunity to separate and divide people 
splitting people up and judging one group of people versus another rather than just looking at another human being as another human being. And that's where you got to get the mind too is where you can walk down the street and you can see somebody of a different ethnic background than you, a different color of skin as you, with different clothes than you, whether you've chosen to have tattoos or not, whether you've, you know, have a certain thought of somebody with long hair on their face or what have you, and not judging that person as being bad or somehow lesser of a human just because of these physical traits or other things like clothing or income level or skin color. And if you can get to that point, then you're eradicating the self that you don't identify with a certain self image and certain identity. And therefore you don't identify others that way. You don't see somebody else's color of skin or ethnic background or what clothes they're wearing or whether they have earrings or not, whether they have certain income, you're not viewing those things as determining whether a person is good or bad. You're just seeing all people as equal. And the beauty in this is that if you do this for yourself, if you eradicate the self, where you don't look at yourself as having to meet certain obligations, certain expectations that the world gives you. When you eradicate that for the self, you're immediately eradicating it for everyone else. Because we are given certain expectations and we adopt those in the mind, certain expectations and obligations that we're trying to fulfill as part of this personal existence view, as part of this arrogance, we're trying to fulfill it for ourselves we then try to impress it upon everybody else and think that everyone else should follow it. And then we start judging other people because they're not doing what we're doing. So by eradicating this personal existence view for yourself and eliminating these expectations, this self-identity, this self-image, these obligations that we're trying to fulfill, then you eradicate it for other people and you can view a homeless man sitting on the street with a dirty face and, you know, beat up clothes in the same exact way as you can that corporate executive that's getting out of a limousine with a sharp suit or, you know, a woman with lots of beautiful jewelry getting out of her limousine. You can view that person in the same exact way as this homeless man because what can happen is as people are evolving, not only do we start to some people look at the corporate executive as higher and the, the homeless man is lower, but you can also have people that look at the homeless man as more important and they can kind of look down on rich people and think that they're bad and think that all rich people are bad. So this can actually work in both directions, right? It can be holding the rich person up high and the homeless person low but it can be the other way around. If some people put the homeless person up high and the rich person low, thinking that all rich people are bad, when in reality, that's not the truth. So what you have to be able to do is look at all people equally, right? It doesn't matter what clothes they're wearing, what their bank account has, how clean or dirty they are, what color of skin they have. All people are equal. 
right? And not judging people just because they're wealthy as being bad or wrong or they've done something wrong or just because they're poor or that they're wrong or they've done something bad. All people is equally. And the way that you get to that is by not judging yourself, is eliminating the expectations, the obligations that you have for yourself to hold on to this self-identity and this self-image. So this is one way to eradicate the self and eradicate this personal existence view. I've put some others in the book as well. Did you have any questions on any of those, Max, or anybody else? Yeah, I'd just like to drill down into this first fetter a little bit. So I think for the, for the other, of the, of the first three fetters, so the other two being doubts about the teachings and the wrong grasp of behavior and observances, I think this, this idea of non-self is probably the one that people get stuck on the most in terms of trying to understand it. I agree. And, I, and I've heard it described in many different ways, I think largely because of two and a half thousand years has passed since the Buddha first taught this. There's a lot of impermanence, a lot of reinterpretation, misinterpretation. So what would be some ways where someone would unequivocally be able to know that they have eradicated this first fetter? And likewise, some ways in which they would know without doubt that it's still there a little bit. The first part is you're not going to know necessarily that you've eradicated this first fetter 100% because the ego is still going to be present. This conceit, this arrogance, this pride is still going to be present. And typically when somebody moves into the first four jhanas and into the first stages of enlightenment, the mind's going to think that it's more enlightened than it really is because of ego. And this is where I talk in the book where I say you should never even convince yourself that you are enlightened. Even if you feel like you've attained enlightenment, you shouldn't really convince yourself of that. So you're never going to know that you've actually eradicated it. It's only other people around you that can observe whether you have or you haven't. But nobody's going to come up to you and say, oh, I noticed that you eradicated the self. Right? Because there's no person who's determining that you are or are not enlightened. And you don't really want to convince yourself that you're enlightened anyway. So the best thing to do is understand the personal existence view more and more. You know, Understand it as much as you can. And then just never assume that it's gone. Never assume that any of these fetters are in go- gone, including the ego. Just always practice being humble and peaceful and peacefully coexisting with other people and never assume that it's gone okay one of the ways that you know it's still there because that one's easier to determine but never assume that it's gone one of the ways that you know that it's still there is if you for example are spending a lot of time beautifying the body right if you're spending a lot of time with the hair, with the makeup, with the jewelry, with the clothes, you know, you have to spend all these hours and hours beautifying the body, then there's still a concept of a self because the mind is viewing the body as the self. And a lot of mind in the unenlightened state will view the body as the self. They think this is me, this body is me. So 
people who have a strong concept of a personal existence view will spend a lot of time beautifying the body. You know, hair, makeup, jewelry, cologne, perfume, clothing, you know, spend a lot of time with intricate clothing and things like this, trying to get everything exactly perfect before they go outside. Doesn't mean those people are bad or they're wrong or, you know, we shouldn't judge these people. It's just where they are in their practice, right? Because all of us have probably been there at some point. You know, I certainly was. I remember, you know, spending a lot of time in front of the mirror and, you know, going shopping and all that kind of stuff. I remember all those days, right? So we're not judging people. We're just saying, okay, this is what the self looks like, right? Is somebody who's taking a lot of time to do those kind of things. The other way you know is, you know, if there's this conceit or arrogance or pride or judging other people, thinking that they're so important, right? Having these expectations for yourself and having expectations for others. If your mind gets discontent because you're expecting people to do one thing or the other, and when they don't do it your way, then the mind becomes discontent. Then there's still self-identity, there's still expectations there because the mind is expecting certain thing. And if it's not done my way, my way, then the mind becomes discontent. That's one of the other ways that you know that there's still this personal existence view. Um, Self-identity, you know, really identifying with there being a real self here. So I will often ask a student a question about where are you? where are you, right? And ask them to point to themselves. And there's certain questions that you can ask somebody, and I don't wanna give you the answers to those questions, but there's certain questions that I can ask people to determine if there's still a self there. And the Buddha and the monks during his lifetime would start asking these questions of people as they got closer and closer to death because they were trying to help the people eradicate the self so that they wouldn't be reborn. So these questions were oftentimes asked around the time of death to try to help people, if they haven't already eradicated the self, to help them eradicate it. So there are certain questions you can ask people to help to see if there's still a self there. But you yourself should just never assume that it's gone and just always practice in a way to be humble, peaceful, eliminate the self-identity. But if you come around a teacher and you're looking for guidance and you're working on eradicating the self without you even knowing it, I will start asking you questions to see if you've actually eradicated the self or not. And if you haven't, I'll give you guidance of some things you need to look at in order to eradicate the self. This is one of the reasons why you need a relationship with a teacher because you can't determine for yourself whether you're actually enlightened or not, other than the fact if you haven't experienced discontentness of mind for many, many years. If you're no longer feeling anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentments, jealousy, all of these feelings, if these things have been gone, out of your mind for several years, then you know pretty much that you've attained enlightenment, but you don't really want to convince yourself of that. You just want to keep walking the path and just keep all these good, wholesome practices. But if you're interested to kind of get an assessment of where you're at with these practices, 
that's where you have a teacher like me, you sit down in a private discussion and we will start asking you questions to try to uncover without you realizing it, without the ego being involved of where you stand with all of these things. And that can be really helpful for you. And we do it in a way that isn't judging you. It's just helping to point out for you some areas of growth and areas of progress that you can pursue as part of your path. And that's why a relationship with a teacher and a relationship with a community of practitioners is important because when the ego is still there and the ego is still there all the way up until you attain enlightenment because there's still going to be conceit. Because the ego is still there all the way, the ego is going to always want to convince you that you're more enlightened than you really are. And because of that, you need other people to help you. So you need to have trust within a community. You need to have trust with your teacher and other members in the community so that we can then help you and point out some things for you to consider as part of your progress to enlightenment. And without that one-on-one interaction with a teacher and without a community around you to help you, you would not be able to do it on your own, just relying on your own devices because the ego is still there with arrogance and pride and judging. Thanks, David. So some people describe realizing this absence of a self as something quite sudden. I have a number of questions around that around this kind of sudden realization and that is that is that what they're realizing or is it perhaps something else like a jhana state is there the possibility of a single moment where one can realize personal existence view or abandoned personal existence view is that necessary (laughs) to go through and is it necessarily even a powerful experience or can it be something that is just very very gradual or you have to talk with other people to understand their perspective of why they say it was a sudden thing. I can't say that it was sudden. I see it as a gradual progression, right? There's a gradual progression of stripping away this self. And even the Buddha did this too, right? Because when he first left the palace, He started letting go of his attachments. One of the first things he did was cut off his hair. At that point, he was eliminating some of this personal existence view, this self-identity, this self-image by cutting off his hair, but he hadn't yet realized non-self. Even though he wasn't directly following any teacher's guidance, he was doing what he felt was right. By cutting off his hair, it eradicated some of that self-identification and self-image. Then when he took off his royal clothing and put on these simple rags that were a robe, that was part of eradicating the self-image and self-identity. But he hadn't yet realized non-self, right? And it wasn't until later as he progressed on his path in the forest that he fully started understanding this. So to me, from my experience, realizing and eradicating this personal existence view is not a sudden thing. It's a slow progression. That's what the Buddha talked about. That's what my experience is, has been as well. But the more you're aware of what it takes to eliminate this personal existence view, this self-identity and self-image, the more you can start to slowly strip it away. 
And when you realize, you know, I'm just standing in the mirror too long, like, you know, let me just get out of here. Like my hair doesn't have to be super perfect, you know, because not everyone has to shave their hair to be enlightened. That's one path. People can do that, but you don't have to. You can have hair and still be enlightened. But if you're standing there for like hours upon hours, you know, you have to realize, that, okay, this is too much. Like, let me just let this go. Let me let it go. I'll be fine. I can go out in the world and my hair can be a little messy and that's okay. And if somebody looks at me in a certain way, I don't need to take offense to that and think that it's because my hair is not quite in the right spot, right? Like sometimes you can see people that will whip out a mirror every so often or the, every time they're in front of a mirror, they have to check and see what they look like because there's the concept of a self. So the more you understand about what the self is, what self-identity is and self-image is, as you start seeing those things crop up, you can say, okay, let me get rid of that. Let me get rid of that. Let me get rid of that. But it's a progression. And then ultimately to really eradicate it 100%, that's where the meditation that I give in chapter 11 can be really helpful. So if you've done all these other things where you're not so concerned about your hair, you're not so concerned about makeup and perfume and clothing and how people view you and all of these things, and you've stripped away a lot of this stuff and you've progressed with the Buddhist teachings quite a bit, then you can start doing this meditation, which will start training the mind more closely. But you can't just jump into this meditation and eradicate the self. It doesn't work that way. There has to be a build up to it and some precursors to it that you have to first recognize what the self is and then you have to slowly start seeing how it's cropping up in your life and then slowly start stripping those things away and then when you start understanding this more and more then diving into perhaps this meditation which really helped me in order to eradicate this even though I don't try to convince myself that it is eradicated but that is what really helped. And this is what I talk about when I felt like I was walking off of a cliff, that I had all these expectations and ideas and perceptions of what I thought I was to become and what I was to do in this life. And the more that I stripped away the self and started doing these meditations, it felt like I was walking off of a cliff because all of these future expectations I had for myself, right? I was stripping all that away and letting it all go. And we have this false sense of security because we lay out these expectations that we think we have for ourselves in the future. And this makes us feel more secure. But when you let all that go through realizing non-self, it can feel like you're walking off of a cliff. And if there was any particular sudden time where that happened, it was that, Max. And is, you know, over the course of a few weeks using this meditation and constantly feeling like I was walking off of a cliff. And then at some points in the meditation, feeling actually scared that that was about to happen and pulling myself back and not being willing to go forward. And then doing it again and again and kind of like, stepping out and then kind of pulling back and stepping out and pulling back and having done that multiple times over the course of weeks, but having a build up up to it, eventually I just trusted. This is where confidence in the Buddha 
comes into play because when you start eradicating the self, eliminating the personal identity view and the self-image, and you feel like you're walking off of this cliff in meditation and you get scared and you want to pull back, you have to have confidence in the Buddha and his teachings that it's leading to a good place. And this is why to attain enlightenment, you have to have those four things that I talked about, which is confidence in the Buddha and your, your teacher, the one who's guiding you along this path. You have to have access to the teachings. You have to have a connection to the wider community of practitioners. And you need to have dedication and commitment to learning and practicing. Because if you have just one of these things, if you have just dedication, but you don't have all these other things, access to the teachings and so forth, you're not going to be able to get it. Or if you just have confidence in the Buddha, you're not going to attain enlightenment. Or if you have confidence in the Buddha and you have access to the teachings, but you have no community around you to support you, it's not going to work. So you need to have all of these things. And when you get closer and closer to realizing non-self and you feel like you're letting go of this future expectations that feel so secure for you, you really have to have confidence that you can step into the deep end and you'll still be able to swim and you're not going to drown and that the Buddha's teachings will lead to where he says because letting go of the self can be very scary because you've held on to it for so long and it feels so secure. It's like a security blanket. So this confidence in the Buddha becomes very, very important as you start stripping away the self. Yes, the sense of self is something that can run really, really deep. The idea of no self can seem very counterintuitive and like releasing any attachment, there's going to be discontentedness in the process of release. Exactly. If we're very, very, if we're very, very, very attached, then that is going to be one mother of a thing to let go of. Right. And there could be a lot of pain potentially in that process. Right. I mean, what we're taught our whole life, right, is leave your mark on society. You are going to be somebody. You need to fulfill these obligations. You have these expectations. That's all we're built up for from birth. You know, we're built up to that. So if you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, and you're trying to work on letting go of that, it can be very scary. And as you said, when you're letting go of attachment, it can cause discontentedness. So when you're letting go of this self, that's where the fear and the scaredness and discontentness comes from because you're letting go of that attachment and it can be very scary. And that's where some people who are trying to do this stuff on their own can become very psychotic. They can end up in mental wards. I have one student who came to me who tried to do a lot of the stuff on their own and now they just have repetitive thoughts. OCD, they just keep having repetitive thoughts over and over and over again because they've worked their mind into a place where they didn't have the guidance they needed, where they just were doing a lot of stuff on their own and now their mind is in such a challenging condition because they weren't able to just send a message or pick up the phone to a teacher and say, gosh, I've been in meditation. I feel all these sensations in my head. My head feels like it's going to explode. I feel like I'm walking off this cliff. I'm so scared. I walk around feeling scared now and I don't know what to do. If you have a teacher in a relationship with the teacher, you can ask them. They've been through it. They've experienced it. They can give you insight how to get to the other side of that. 
But if you're trying to do all this stuff on your own and you don't have anybody to reach out to and talk on a personal level, then you can really work yourself into some problems. And this is where there's some stories out there where people were trying to do this on their own with meditation and following YouTube videos and Dhamma talks online. And people actually got to a point where they committed suicide and actually have killed themselves because their mind became so discontent because they didn't have the guidance they needed. So it's important to have guidance. And if, even if my response is, that's normal, keep going, then you at least have that assurance that everything's normal. Just keep pursuing, keep meditating, keep going. And it keeps you stable and it gives you what you need to go through this. This is why only a Buddha would be able to do this by themselves. Only a Buddha is going to have the ability to actually do this on their own. And this is why people who try to do it on their own will oftentimes end up in problematic situations of either going crazy and ending up in a psych ward or committing suicide or other things like this. So I can't stress enough how important it is to be able to reach out to somebody. Even if you only see me on these online talks and you ask an occasional question, at least you have some type of guidance and you feel comfortable that if you starting to feel a little bit awkward, you can reach out to me and send me a message or post in our Facebook group and get the guidance that you need. And that will keep the mind stable and moving forward. Um, so it's really good that you guys are reaching out to, to get help. Okay, so we have a question from Bill, and then we'll go to James, who has his hand up. So Bill asks, can you elaborate on one of the practices in your book on dissolving the ego practices to eliminate your interest to project your personal image? Yes, that's what I was referring to about makeup and perfume or cologne or doing your hair or certain clothes. This is projecting the self-image. Um, it doesn't mean that it, that you can't do those things, right? So this isn't about no perfume, you know, no makeup, you know, no doing your hair. It's not about that. It's about recognizing that if you indulge in those things and you do them excessively with the interest to get attention from other people, and that's what you feel is going to make the mind content and happy, then you still have attachment because you have maybe a certain thing whereas if my makeup's not just right, I'm not gonna get the attention that I want, therefore the mind's gonna be discontent. Or I do all of this stuff to make myself look nice, make myself look nice, and then I go outside and nobody gives me a compliment and then I become sad or discontent because nobody gives me a compliment. Or I'm expecting a compliment, right? I've got a date. I've got somebody that I'm going to see. I put on these nice clothes. I do my hair. I buy this new pair of shoes. And then when I match up with this date and they don't compliment me, now the mind feels discontent. So if I'm trying to project this self-image and I'm looking for reassurance and compliments from other people because of this projected self-image, then the mind is looking for outward satisfaction they're still craving desire attachment. There's still this mental longing for acceptance. The mind is looking to be accepted. And it's through this outward projection of a self-image that it feels like it's going to get that acceptance. So we need to eradicate that 
and just be whoever you want to be. If you want to wear makeup, wear makeup. If you want to do your hair with a perm, do your hair with a perm. If you want to cut off your hair, cut it off. If you want to wear cologne and perfume, wear it. Do it because you just would like to do it and you enjoy the smell. Or you do it because you like to cut off your hair. Or you do it because you enjoy not because you're looking for something from somebody else or i wear this certain clothing because it's just what i what i wear but if we have this projection of a self where we're trying to get others to recognize this beautification of the self then there's still attachment there looking for approval from other people and acceptance from other people so james i can see you have your hand up so i'm gonna go over here and unmute you if you're ready Okay, um, so I was just um, want to ask about, um, you know, um, as people are navigating the path, um, especially in Western society, where maybe a lot of people aren't practicing, I think it can be easy to fall into conceit and comparing yourself to others. Who, um, so I was just wondering um, if you had any insight about um, about avoiding that trap and just comparing where you're at to others because you may perceive yourself, um, you know, as superior in the, some moral sense to someone who maybe isn't. Um, I mean, I think the teachings say a lot about that in regards to um, loving kindness and um, all of the other ways that you mentioned in the book to, um, to combat ego, but I guess I was just wondering if you had any specific um, insight about that. Yeah, one thing I can share with that that I think is important is if we recognize impermanence, that there's no steady, constant, fixed state, and we recognize that all human beings were on this path, whether we realize it or not, even someone who's never heard of the Buddhist teachings, they're on a certain path. They might need to be reborn back to the lower realms before they get back to the human realm again, but we're all on a certain path in life. And we're all evolving at different paces. We're all gradually evolving where some people might choose to not eat meat. Other people choose to eat meat. Some people choose to do one thing or another and other people don't. And it doesn't mean that the person who doesn't eat meat is better or more evolved or further on the path because that person who doesn't eat meat they might have all these other cravings that are making them not as far along as somebody else. So all of these fetters and all of these aspects of the path, they all get implemented with each person at different degrees. There's no just one straight path that if you've done this, this, and this, you are X, or you, if you've done this, this, and this, you are that. So if you recognize that this is your own independent journey, that you comparing yourself to anyone else is only going to hold you back and that everybody is evolving and gradually progressing on this path at their own pace, then it becomes dangerous to try to compare yourself to somebody else because the real goal is for you to learn and practice the teachings for yourself. And trying to compare yourself to somebody else is just for the mind to try to put itself above or below somebody else and it's just better to just have sympathetic joy if somebody is eating meat for example this is a common one right like some people feel like because they don't eat meat that they're you know more morally correct than someone who who does eat meat 
if you're still eating meat and somebody else isn't, and they're kind of arrogant or prideful because they've, they're vegetarian or vegan, sympathetic joy. Oh, I'm pleased for you. That's great. And if they're trying to impress upon you that that's what you need to be doing at this particular moment, just know that that's their attachment. That's their, their judging, their pride. And just know, like, you know, I'll, I'll get to that if I get to it. And just because other people might be comparing themselves to you and people might be trying to impress upon their expectations on you, don't fall into the trap of you doing it back to them. The way that I do this is I think about the Buddha. He's the master teacher. He's the absolute best practitioner that ever lived in terms of these teachings. No one else is ever going to be more knowledgeable or a deeper practitioner than him. So if we're all kind of judging ourselves and judging each other, what are we judging each other for? There's no race. There's already somebody at the top. It's the Buddha, the master teacher. Any kind of comparison or judging each other is just dangerous to the mind. And it's better to just be humble. And if somebody is really prideful for certain things that they've done and they're judging you, then just have sympathetic joy. Oh, I'm pleased for you. I'm glad that's working out for you. And just remain humble with your own practice and know that you're evolving at your own pace and that you don't need to fulfill somebody else's expectations and obligations of where you should be on this path, that everybody's progressing at their own pace, whatever that is. So those are just some suggestions that I would maybe say, you know, just realize it's dangerous to try to compare yourself and recognize when other people are doing it to you so you can see how you don't like that and it doesn't feel good when somebody's trying to put themselves above you with arrogance. And when you notice about how it doesn't make you feel good when that happens or, or you kind of don't like being around this arrogance, then when you recognize that you don't like being around other arrogant people, then why would you ever want to be arrogant towards somebody else? Because it's just it's just dangerous. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel good with others. So why would you do it? Um, it doesn't create good wholesome results. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for that, James. So I have a question, David. Mm-hmm. You spoke a little earlier about uh, finding a teacher, the importance of finding a teacher. And as we learn and practice ourselves and we experience benefits, we may experience a compulsion to help others, to try and help others, maybe out of compassion, maybe out of craving, maybe a bit of both. So what are some things we should be aware of as we take these teachings out into the world when it comes to helping others? And and what are some dangers we should be aware of? Okay, so the teachings of the Buddha have been part of Thai culture for many centuries. And there's certain people who are really well-known teachers in the world that share these teachings and people know in the community, this monk is enlightened or this teacher is enlightened. And people know they can go to this person for guidance and for instruction. And if somebody was going to go out and teach on their own with that person's knowledge and wisdom, they're essentially going to ask for permission from that teacher. It's kind of part of like a, a lineage, so to speak. 
It's like having respect for the elders and their wisdom. And out of compassion for all beings, if somebody just sat in a couple of classes or listened to a couple of my podcasts or read my book and then ran out and tried to start teaching what I'm teaching, that's actually not an act of compassion or loving kindness because that person's only listened to a few podcasts. They've only read the book. They've only been in a couple of talks. And if they go out and start teaching these teachings, they don't really have what they need in order to really offer these teachings in a comprehensive way that's going to really benefit people. They could actually be making the problem worse because of their ego or because of their craving to run out and go teach and maybe use the teachings from somebody like, for example, for me, then they're kind of doing a disservice to the teachings. It's almost somewhat disrespectful to the teacher themselves because they're kind of ripping the teachings and then without the kind of approval of that teacher, they're kind of going out and trying to share these teachings in an unprepared way. Now, maybe that comes from a real intention of helping. Maybe it comes from loving kindness, active goodwill. Maybe it comes from compassion. Maybe it comes from an interest to really help people, which is great. But we have to recognize when we're actually prepared to teach and when we're not. And if you have respect for the teacher who you're learning with and you have respect with the teachings that you're learning and you've decided that I would like to share these teachings with other people, then typically what you do is you speak up privately with the teacher and you say, you know, I would like to teach someday. You know, if you'd be willing to help me, I would be willing to learn with you very closely and then actually go share the teachings and then that teacher would work with you and help you to learn, support you and encourage you and build up your wisdom. And then at some point that teacher is going to say, OK, now is a good time for you to, to start teaching. But by that point, you've already got such a good relationship that it kind of works out really well. So in order to share these teachings, you need to first be a really deep practitioner. You need to really learn deeply with a teacher, gain a lot of results, gain the wisdom, gain the progress on the path where your mind's gotten to at least the first, second, or third stage of enlightenment, maybe even the fourth stage before you actually go out and start teaching. And as your mind's progressing through these stages, that would be the time that you perhaps might decide to go out and start teaching, but you need support. You can't just go out on your own and rip off the teachings from a teacher and then just start teaching without support. Because when you're out there trying to teach, people are going to have questions that you're not going to have answers to. And you're going to want to go back to your teacher and say, hey, I got this question. What do you think? You're going to need the support as a practitioner from your teacher to become enlightened but then as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, if you choose to teach, you're going to need your teacher's support in order to learn how to be a good teacher. Just like they taught you how to be a good practitioner, they're going to be able to support and encourage you to be a good teacher. So if you go out on your own and do it without the guidance or, you know, kind of support of the teacher, 
it's going to be a disservice to you and to anybody that you choose to share these teachings with because you don't have the support and the foundation under you in which to share the teachings with people. So it's a great worthwhile pursuit to share these teachings with people, but you want to just be sure that you've got what you need as a foundation under you and the support and encouragement from a teacher to be able to do that. And if you have compassion and loving kindness for the people that are interested in learning these teachings, you would make sure that you're really well prepared before you actually go do it. Like, for example, if you've never built a house before, you're not going to go out and start building houses for people because that's dangerous. Because if you don't understand how to build a house and you just willy nilly went out and started building houses for people, they can fall down and crush people and kill people and you're going to have a lot of problems because of that, right? So you have to have built many, many houses under the guidance and leadership of somebody else so that you can then ultimately go out and start building houses and have confidence that what you're helping people to build is going to be nice and strong and stable. So if you've just sat in on a couple of talks or you've just picked up a couple of books or you're just heard a couple of podcasts and you go out and start sharing teachings, you're helping people to build something that's going to fall down because you've never actually built the house yourself. You haven't attained one of these four stages of enlightenment with the support of a teacher. So how could you ever help somebody else to do the same thing? So the best thing that you can do is focus on dedicating your time and effort to your own practice and becoming enlightened yourself. And then when it's the appropriate time, talk to your teacher about perhaps going out and sharing the teaching so you're best prepared and supported to do so. Because one of the things that can happen is if you go out and start teaching too early, is you can start taking on students without having the ability to support them and really give them the teachings in a way that's going to be really helpful to them and support them. And you can start getting a number of students where now it takes you away from your learning and your practice. And now you haven't attained enlightenment and now you're out there teaching people in a haphazard way without support. And now it slows your progress because you're so busy trying to share things that you think you know with other people And now that's taking so much of your time, you don't even have the time to attain enlightenment yourself. And you kind of get into this downward spiral where it becomes ineffective for the people that you're trying to help. And it becomes ineffective for you because now you don't have the time and dedication that you need to actually evolve your own practice. So why it might start it out with really good intentions, with loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings. It might have started out with compassion, concern for others' misfortune. What ends up happening is you end up causing more damage to people who you're not really able to support, and then you're not able to actually continue your progress on the path because you haven't attained enlightenment yet. So the best way to do it is just to focus on your learning on your progress, on your path, get really far along, having attained the first, second, third stage, or maybe the fourth stage of enlightenment with a particular teacher. And as you're in that progress, 
kind of let the teacher know that, hey, you would like to teach someday so that they can start helping you in that direction. And then when you get to the point where they feel like, okay, you know, now's a good time, they will let you know that now's a good time. And this is the best way to respect these traditions and respect the people that are learning and that will learn with you. Because it's great and wonderful to share these teachings with other people, but if you're not prepared to do so, then it's actually harming people. You know, you just really want to make sure that, that you've got what you need to support the people who are going to learn. And what's most important in this path is your liberation, your enlightenment, right? You've got to get to enlightenment. And if you're trying to support all these people without the confidence and without the ability to do so, then it's taking away from your own liberation, your own enlightenment. That's the most important thing is for you to get to enlightenment. So if you find yourself in a situation where you think people can benefit from these teachings, but you know yourself that you don't have what you need in order to share them in a way that would be helpful, then the best thing you can do is recommend for these people to get in touch with your teacher. Get them access to a book, get them access to YouTube videos, get them access to the podcast, but ultimately get them access to your teacher so that they can be progressing along the path right along with you. Even if you have intentions to be a teacher someday, but you're just not quite there yet, one of the ways for you to help people is just to connect them up with the resources and the teacher that you're using that's helping you on your path. That way they get the help they need, but you can keep on your path and keep progressing yourself rather than kind of slowing your progress by trying to support people without having the support that you need and the knowledge and wisdom that you need to actually start teaching. Because, you know, that's, that's a really wholesome pursuit to share the teachings with other people. It's one of the most wonderful things we can do, but you really want to make sure that you're working on your own liberation and you've got the support you need to be able to offer the teachings to people. And that only comes with a really good teacher-student relationship and a teacher supporting you and helping you to become a very good practitioner, but then also a very good teacher. So if there's anybody who's really interested in becoming a teacher, I can help you. So just be sure that you reach out and let me know that you're interested in being a teacher. And what I would do is I will focus you on being a very good practitioner first, because that has to precede being a teacher. It's making sure that you're learning these teachings and liberating your mind more and more and more to become a very good practitioner. And then the more and more that you're evolving as a practitioner, then I will start helping you to learn and support you and becoming more of a teacher. And, and that's what kind of you and I are doing, Max. You kind of mentioned to me about six months ago or so that you're interested in teaching someday. And, you know, I've been helping you a lot, you know, behind the scenes that people don't see. You and I have a lot of discussions that really help you to be a very, very good practitioner, but then also helping you to become more of a teacher. And that's why you're kind of in the role that you are kind of moderating, kind of helping there. And you're also doing some things in other places to help. And this is me kind of supporting you because you said to me, you stepped forward first. I didn't ask you to be a teacher. You stepped forward and said, I have an interest. And I just said, okay, well, let's see where things go. And 
we'll see. And then, you know, I've kind of helped you a lot in continuing to help you. So if there's people out there that would like to learn to be a teacher, you can. It's a multi-year progress uh, and, and path. And the initial part of it is just being a very, very, very good practitioner. And that's going to be the experience you need to be a very good teacher. Yeah, thanks for that, David. And also to reflect on the importance of having a teacher, I think in any area of life where we want to make progress, whether it's sports or business, you know, people have coaches, people have mentors, and training your mind is absolutely subject to the same laws there. If you work closely with a teacher, I personally find that you know choosing to work with David has really helped me, really helped my practice. And it's something I would encourage anyone to do is to be actively involved with a teacher. Yes, learn teachings, but also to build that relationship you mentioned, David, and work with them. And, and don't be afraid of making mistakes because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the whole reason we're here. I mean, you know, there's endless numbers of times that when I've misstepped in front of David, that's the whole, you know, the whole point. <laughs> so you can help me, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions and, and yeah, really get to the bottom of what's causing that discontentedness in the mind. Yeah, and, and honestly, we need teachers in the world, right? And in terms of bringing these teachings into the West, we need more and more and more people to learn and become teachers. I'm not going to ask you to be a teacher. I'm not going to try to push you to be a teacher or force you or expect you to be a teacher. But if you've chosen and it's something that you're considering and you step forward and make that interest known, then I will support you because we need teachers in the West. The more and more people that understand these teachings deeply and start sharing them in the world, the better. So I'm all about supporting people and helping people to become a teacher, but I'll never ask you to be a teacher. I will never try to force upon you or expect you, or like I said, even ask you to be a teacher because I don't want to put that expectation and condition your mind that somehow you should be a teacher because not everybody who becomes enlightened is going to become a teacher. Not everybody has that interest. But if you do have that interest or you develop that interest at any time as you're learning and progressing on this path, just make it known and then I will support you and encourage you and help you along that path to become a very great practitioner and a teacher because we really need more and more teachers that can share these teachings in the world, particularly in the West. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay, well, I will just say thank you all once again for attending and deciding to learn and practice these teachings. I think you guys have heard from me either in these classes, on the podcast, in videos, in posts on Facebook, how appreciative I am for people who are learning and practicing these teachings. Because I know that the more that we learn, the more we progress, the more that we practice these teachings, the world is just going to become a better and better and better place. So I thank you once again for taking the time to learn and practice these teachings. Dissolving the ego is very, very important. The book in chapter 17 
has a lot more than what we actually covered in our talk today. So if you haven't yet read chapter 17, I suggest you, you go read chapter 17. This video is going to live in Facebook. It's going to live on YouTube. There's going to be a podcast and there's lots of these talks that you can listen back to. You don't have to just be in the class once. So the more that you listen to these talks, the more things you will take in. It's just like watching a movie two or three times. You will hear things and notice things differently as you go through some of these talks more than once. So I encourage you to continue to dive in to the teachings and continue to learn them, continue to practice them. Always focus on being humble, being down to earth, being appreciative, viewing all people equally, getting rid of any arrogance, any pride, any conceit, getting rid of that self-image and that self-identity, thinking that there's this permanent self that we need to protect. And the more and more you do this, you will see by being more humble, by being more peaceful, by not judging other people, you will then be able to have open relationships with all people and you will realize the benefits of just being able to converse and interact with all people of all walks of life, no matter where they are in society. So until next time, I will wish you guys a very, very good day. Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy learning and walking on this path. So may you be peaceful, may you be safe, may you be well, may you be free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. Have a very good day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.